Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you, Catherine, and I am delighted to be joined today by Carrie Lucas. Carrie is the president of the Independent Women's Forum, and she is an author of multiple books, including Liberty is No War on Women and The Politically Incorrect Guide to Women, Sex, and Feminism. But what really makes me excited that Carrie is able to join us today for this discussion on paid family leave and childcare within the American Families Plan is Carrie's personal experience with these issues. We often hear politicians talk about what family struggles are and they love to propose their own solutions, but often those, those solutions are out of touch with families' actual needs and realities. Between our two families, Carrie and I have 11 children within the ages of three and 15. So we know the importance of paid family leave and of families having options um, that make sense for them with childcare. But this is not what politicians are proposing. You know, raising a family isn't easy, regardless of whether you're working part-time, full-time, running a small side hustle, or staying full home full-time with children, there's really no one-size-fits-all solution that works for every family's different situations and desires. But one size is what's being offered up here in the American Families Plan. We have a one-size bureaucratic government paid family leave program, and then there are one-size government-directed childcare centers that don't align with most families' needs or desires. You know, in reality, the American Families Plan is going to do more to subsidize the lifestyles of affluent and wealthy families than it would do to meet the needs and desires of working class families. So I'm gonna start here first with paid family leave and Carrie and I are just gonna have a back and forth discussion here. Um, but first of all, what the plan calls for, um, it's pretty similar to the Family Act. It's basically a government program that will provide up to 12 weeks of paid family leave with about two thirds of wage replacement. Um, we know that Americans support paid family leave and that's for a good reason. You know, we can all recognize the importance of families being able to take time off when they have a medical or a caregiving need or when they have a new child. But we do have to look at both sides of the equation and not ignore the fact that workers' absences actually have some costs and consequences. And those costs and consequences are always higher when they come through government mandates than when it's through an employer and employee being able to work out their own policies. So just looking really quickly at some of the statistics here, 74% of Americans say they support a paid family leave, a federal program. But then when you start asking them about what they'd be willing to give up in exchange for it, that support plummets to less than 30% if it meant less spending on other programs or if it would mean to lower compensation or fewer promotions and opportunities for women. Um, and I know, Carrie, you've done a lot of work looking at the evidence of paid family leave programs in Europe and within the US. Um, and we've often heard that we need to implement paid family leave to help women so that they'll have more opportunities in the workforce. What do we know about what these programs actually accomplish for women? Yeah, you know, I, I'm Rachel, I really appreciate the way you've kind of set this up because I do think it's kind of, um, it's like an interesting moment because I think that a lot of people um, like say, oh, we need to make workplaces friendlier for women and um, easier for people to balance the, the needs of their um, family and work lives. And there's this, and you like, you know, the United States is the only place in the, the only developed country in the world that doesn't have paid leave. 
Um, and you'll see, I bet you guys have seen, or you've seen the maps where, um, you know, you look at us and we're like in league with Zimbabwe is the only other place or something. And, oh, it's so horrible. Or we're so bad to, to women. What's the matter with us? And I think it's really important to unpack some of this because, um, because just, you know, I think one of the great things about America is that we recognize um, just because something is good doesn't mean that the best way to make it plentiful is for government to deliver it. Um, right? And there's a lot of things that we all recognize that we want and need, um, but don't think that, oh, that means that, of course, government needs to have a, a way to provide this for every single person. Um, and when you do look at one of the great things that's been going on over recent years in the private sector is there has been an enormous growth in the amount of paid leave that people are given, um, that companies are, more companies are providing it, they're providing it for um, a greater class of workers, um, and uh, and um, and they're extending, they're providing uh, additional leave. So this is something that's kind of a growing trend. Um, but when you look at, um, you know, so we have this good thing going on kind of on in the private world, and then it is really is important to look at, well, um, the costs, because it's not just, you know, everybody could say, oh, you know, it's great, let's have all of 12 weeks of paid vacation. What could, what could be wrong with that? Um, but we do know that there is a lot wrong with that, and it's not just, um, money. It's not just taxes, although those are considerable. Um, but we do see in places like Europe, um, where women are far less likely than um, than American women to be in positions of leadership, um, where women, American women, are about um, equal to men in terms of the numbers that are managers. Um, and in um, in the EU and those OECD countries, um, women are about half as likely as men. Um, and there's a big correlation between this the kind of family-friendly policies, um, which sound nice, but from an employer's perspective mean that women are le much less likely to be on the job, um, and therefore they're less likely to be given positions of responsibility. And I do think that's something that should caution um, U.S. women um, before we jump into this European approach. Yeah, because I think there's that difference there when it comes voluntarily from the employer being willing to provide that in a, a flexible way and that's accommodating and meets both of their needs um, versus having a government mandate. And, you know, time and again, I think we've seen these studies that look at these programs in Europe, um, even within California, that say, has this been helpful? Um, there was a recent one that came out of the National Bureau of Economic Research looking at Austria and six decades worth of progressive pro-family policies, paid family leave, government subsidized childcare, and they found that it had zero impact on helping women. They actually found that the wage gap there between men and women would have been two percentage points smaller had those policies not been in place. And I will note that the so-called wage gap um, was in the 58 cents there versus in the US where that gross figure is 82%. We would argue that it's actually all choice-based, but women are making far less despite these programs being in place. And we even saw out in California, it's not as generous of a program as in Europe, but that the program led to women who use that program having lower earnings, lower employment, and oddly having fewer children. Um, economists were struggling to say exactly why that is. Um, but I know another policy, reason behind wanting to advocate for paid family leave, and I think something that we would all agree on, is we want there to be more access for lower income workers because they don't tend to be in the positions that offer this. We have seen positive growth over the last couple of years, I'll note, um, but still lower income workers are less likely to have access to paid family leave. Um, but Carrie, I know that IWF has studied this you know, abroad and within the U.S. and looked at 
the fact that it actually these government programs don't meet low-income workers. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, and it is, I, it's such an importance. I do think a lot of the, the folks who are out there saying, but of course we need paid leave. You know, I may have a good situation, but what about, you, you hear a horror story of a, a woman who um, has to have a C-section and she um, you know, can't make ends meet, so has to go right back to her, um, um, go back to her job. And I feel like everybody, all of us would say, man, I really, if we could figure out a way to help that woman, um, uh, you know, we would we want to do so. Uh, but the but the truth is, when you look at these government approaches, which are so um, untargeted, um, that what they often do, with the, the people who end up being able to take benefits are people who can fill out the paperwork, are aware of the program, and then are able to take the lower uh, repla replacement rate. What we've seen in places like um, California and Rhode Island, there's a robust study in Ro Rhode Island that show that the, the majority of the benefit people taking benefits are in the upper upper income um, echelons, and people who are in the, the lower, the people who you really wish you could get, you could give support to, and who really need it and do lack um, paid leave, are they're much less likely to take it. And what's worse is they're paying the taxes. Um, and this isn't just an American phenomenon. There was a study in um, in Norway um, that looked at their uh, kind of very similar to what we're talking about, their paid leave program. And the the economists concluded they they were characterized it as a as a pure transfer payment from poor to rich in the form of leisure. And this this I think should give give everyone caution. Um, and I also think that even if you are out there and you're saying, well, you know, a lot of middle income folks. Um, you know, still need help, and it's it's you know even if it's not helping the the very worst off. Um, but we should be really careful because when you look at the 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 programs that are out there now, and think about converting everyone to a, a government program, and I do think that's we need to use that language because what would happen if we start if we embrace this the family the Biden plan or the the Family Act, which is the working vision, um, version in the Senate? Um, this would be a lot of employers out there. Would say, okay, if this is going to happen, then the, the what I've been providing thus far, um, that's done because we're going to start paying this tax to to create this new system, and all of our workers are going to be transferred in to the government program. And even if the government program is, you know, it's going to there'll be winners and losers. For some, it'll be extra weeks. Some it'll be on fewer weeks. Um, but what it will be for sure is a lot less flexible. Um, that means especially for women for whom um, they have different needs or different desires, they have their husband can take time off, they don't have a husband, they need to take different, they want to you know, stagger their leave. There's a million different ways that women want to make this, um, this happen. But once you're in a government system, the conversation is over. I have to do what the government says. I have to comply with the rules. The rules are going to be very um, stringent. I'm going to worry about compliance as like a as a small employer. This is as Independent Women's Forum. I would be thinking, you know, I need to make sure that I'm not doing anything that's going to um, get me in trouble with the um, the program administrator um, administrators. Um, and that means that you need, I can't answer. I can't ask you to answer an email. I can't do things for these. This set of time, it's going to be an absolute conversation stopper, um, which I feel like is an absolute disaster um, for women, especially for women who want to get ahead and, and want to find, really do want to continue their careers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. And I know that the Congressional Budget Office looked at the Family Act and they scored that. And among that, you could parse out that they actually estimated only 42% of the people who would need to take leave 
would be able to use that government program. And even with that only 42% being able to use it, the cost would explode to over 240% of what they originally said. So you would either have to have rationing or massive tax hikes there. And as you pointed out, the reality is that it's not gonna help lower income. It's gonna be a windfall to all those companies, primarily the larger ones with larger profits that are able to provide paid family leave now who are gonna take it back. We've heard from those companies who operate in the states who have a state-based program, and they've said, no, we're making our workers first go through that state-based program. And I know that's what a lot of places in DC are doing now, and also doing things like cutting off workers' access to emails and to computer systems out of fear of lawsuits. Um, so you're just thinking through the practical reality of, as a worker, would you rather email your boss and say, I have this need for leave coming up, or maybe it's an emergency, I need to run out the door right now. Um, versus going through that bureaucratic government program. I know that last year when Washington State kicked theirs in, people were waiting 10 weeks before they got benefits or even found out if they were eligible for benefits. Everybody has to wait one week. It's a waiting week period. And then after that, you can apply when you actually have the need. And then people were taking out loans because they didn't know if they would qualify for these benefits. So just the reality of having to go through that type of program and I mean, what would it mean for you as an employer yeah. if you were to have a federal or even a state program? How would that change what you have now? Yeah, you know, because we do, you know, we, are, we are a women's organization. We have a lot of babies, as you know, you and I know that there's a lot of, I, I will have four um, employees who will take maternity leave in 2021. Um, uh, so, um, so this is something that comes up and we do have a set and we provide um, six weeks of paid maternity leave. But then we also, you know, I have a woman who should be um, having her first baby any day now um, and she doesn't know exactly how she's going to feel. She's going to take her six weeks and we're going to talk about what it means when she comes back, if she needs some extra time and wants to take some unpaid leave or wants to come back partially. We can have those conversations. Um, and during those those first six weeks, she knows that we might, if there's something that only she knows, I'm going to send her an email or, or bother her and she's going to get back to me when she, um, you know, when she has time. Uh, but we have these these conversations where I really feel like we both treat each other with respect and as individuals, um, recognizing her needs as, an, as a young mom. Um, but then she also recognizes and wants to be a part of the team. So when she comes back, she won't have, have let us, um, um, you know, left us hanging or have anybody be really struggling when she's, when she's gone. There, but again, if government gets in the way, um, suddenly I would have to be tallying, you know, did she, if by answering this email, like what is the, you know, what are the consequences? Does that now count as an hour worked, a day worked? Um, if I treat her differently and, and give that, it's the kind of thing where then, um, you know, you're liable to have a, a conversation like if you treated other employees differently, that can lead to discrimination lawsuits. There's the whole idea of government coming in and telling you exactly how this has to run is going to be really limiting for an, empl an employer like ours. I would absolutely, if, if we were paying taxes into a government paid leave program, everyone would have to go through that because it would be um, irresponsible for, as a, um, you know, as a, from a budget standpoint, a fiduciary standpoint to just to not take advantage of that. Um, so I really feel like the employees would be far worse, worse off. And small for small businesses, it's one thing. Again, you're right. A lot there will be some windfalls for some of the bigger companies, but for for small ones, the administrative hassle alone will be um, will be an enormous burden. You're going to see a lot more outsourcing, a lot fewer, um, less job creation, especially for those small empl small employers. 
Yeah, I can't even imagine for the small employers. I was able to sit in a conversation with a bunch of HR representatives from very large employers, and some of them had companies in multiple states with different programs, and they all supported paid family leave. They all had programs of their own before the laws were put in place, but they had so many frustrations dealing with these programs, things like having to track in 15-minute increments whether an employee on leave or not on leave. There were times when they had approved the employee taking leave and then the government program said, no, you didn't actually qualify and workers had to pay back this leave that they So it just seems like a nightmare out there. And especially that this policy proposal is coming at a time when we have seen a doubling in the number of employers who are providing paid paternity and maternity leave over four years. We were already on this huge upswing because of tax cuts and reduced regulations. And that was prior to COVID-19. And now with COVID-19, you know, there were government mandates that forced the employers to have paid family leave, but there were also just the necessity of providing these benefits to workers um, in order to keep the business running. And so I actually am really hopeful for what's going to come out of COVID-19 for working women and just the opportunities and the flexibility that will be out there with all the remote work capabilities that are now in place. I think we're going to see a continued uptick in paid family leave, but that this could all be sideswiped if we have the American Families Plan with a government program because it's simply not an employer's interest to have their own policy. Yeah, you know, and one other one other thought on this on, on paid family leave, I, I actually think there's another, it's, it's almost like a lost, um, you know, when we think about the different um, players in paid leave policy and, and especially in kind of during COVID and some of the ways we've been thinking about workers and employers and the relationship, something that I think is often like left out is the idea of like the customers. And I do think that American women and American families um, also are customers of a lot of, of services. And some of them, it's not just, you know, restaurants and, um, and kind of leisure things that we are fun to consume but aren't necessary. There's a lot about people out there who depend on things um, you know, not just childcare, not just schools, but also on like home healthcare workers. And something we've seen with the co with um kind of the COVID unemployment benefits, but also comes into play when you start having really um, lengthy and um, generous um, paid leave benefits that are um, created by the government. There's going to be a lot of disruption in service, and we've seen a lot of like actual suffering among the elderly who are not having um, home healthcare workers show up and having these jobs go unfulfilled. Um, if you do start giving people, and you know, the Family Act has, it's not just for, um, I feel like we haven't talked about this from a paid family leave, and we assume it's basically new baby, somebody had a, a new baby and really needs six weeks off or, or can't work for six weeks. Um, but this is for everything from you know, a personal illness, the illness of a loved one, um, there's a bereavement aspect to it, there's a military deployment, um, there's the uh, domestic violence, and all of these are things where you would say, okay, of course, and as an employer, I'm going to, on a case-by-case basis, try to provide support for people in these various situations. But we also know that there is the potential for abuse. And we know that there's some people out there who are going to be trying to um, you know, take every last moment of that leave time. Um, and it makes it, makes it really hard. Um, and especially when you get into this idea of what's, what's going to go missing. I feel like you need to kind of look at that side of the ledger, too. Yeah, you need to look at both aspects. And this actually transitions well to childcare because I know that I had a situation once where two people were out and they didn't, based on all the regulations and the ratios you need, they had to shut down the entire childcare. So we had like 20 families without childcare for a week, all of those parents not able to work just because two workers weren't able to come in. So you make that an entitlement instead of the negotiation saying like in advance, yes, I'm going to need this leave. Um, can you call somebody else in when it's not in the employer's hands? That's when you have 
all these consequences. But talking about childcare now, so the American Families Plan does call for a big, quote, investment in childcare. And what this would do is provide either free or very low cost childcare to families so that they don't have to pay more than 7% of their incomes. But if you look at what that actually translates to in the cost of childcare, we are talking about subsidies for very wealthy families, um, which will ultimately require those families who don't use childcare to be the ones who are paying for those who do. And I want to start here first with this notion um, that both the presidents and liberals are using as their selling point. And that's the notion that childcare is an investment. Um, you know, the White House fact sheet says that when a parent steps out of the workforce, even if it's just temporarily when a child is young, that that has lifetime consequences for the income that they can provide, whether they lose a promotion or they don't save as much for retirement. But there is zero mention of the investment that a parent makes when they decide to either stay home full time, to work fewer hours, the investment that that is in their children. And frankly, I think that's really insulting to the millions of mothers and fathers out there who do give up that time to be at home with their children because it has very positive consequences for them. And we have seen the negative consequences of these government run programs. Um, but Carrie, I know that you have looked at this notion, the seven for one return. Every $1 we put into childcare programs is gonna provide $7 of positive outcomes. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and what that's based yeah. on? You know, yeah, thanks, Rachel. That's, it's so funny because I do think um, this is one of those statistics you see all the time. And I think it's easy just to say, okay, you know, not kind of dig into where, where these numbers come from. Um, but you do, this is like President Obama used to talk about this and President Biden is now saying it. This, you know, for every one dollar, you'll get seven dollars back. Um, and if you do click through um, and see what it is they're pointing to, it's kind of amazing because the, the statistics that are where that's being derived from is some really old programs, um, one of which is called the um, Perry um, School Project. And there's another one called the Incendiary Project. I think that's how you say it. But it's um, from the night. They're both from about the 1960s and 70s and were uh, served a very small group, something like 50 people um, participated, and um, and they were from very very disadvantaged backgrounds. So this was these were programs that came in and they didn't just provide um, some intensive preschool to the kids. They also were doing things like meeting with the moms and having in-home training for um, for these uh, for these young mothers who are really disadvantaged. And they did have some very um, positive um, outcomes. Although there have not been studies, this is obviously, they knew this, they were studying this in the 1970s um, and recognized that, it, this, we, that there were some positive, this was initial positive findings. But the chance, since they tried to replicate this in the, um, ever since then, there haven't been these great outcomes. So we keep pointing back to these really old studies. That's why, so I think it's, A, it's a little bit um, bogus and a little bit of a stretch to keep citing these time and time again when they haven't been replicated. But especially when there's a very interesting word that I have not seen anywhere coming from the White House and from the um, uh, from like anybody who's selling this American Families Act, and you don't hear the words Head Start. And um, and it's kind of funny because um, if we're talking about a huge government program to invest in childcare and early education, you would think we would be starting and learning from the existing big government program, which is um, supposed to be doing the exact same thing. Head Start was sold as something that was going to make it easier for parents to work, but also was going to improve school readiness and have lasting impacts for the kids who participated in it. Why isn't it coming up? Uh, well, because there is, in fact, a congressionally mandated study that took place to see 
hey, let's see, what are the benefits? Like, are we having some really good returns of investment? Are these kids who participated in these uh, government subsidized um, programs, are they doing better later in life? And the reason why it's not talked about is because the congressionally mandated studies did not find lasting positive benefits. So, um, so this whole idea of a one, uh, you know, a seven-on-one return or whatever it's supposed to be, have not borne out with Head Start, and so and there's absolutely no reason. Um, and you know, and Head Start is supposed to serve a a less advantaged community. It's, there's um, an income requirements, so it's it's absolutely ridiculous to to surmise that investing in a middle class entitlement because the childcare is basically will be an every single family, even you know the richest families would be um, entitled to um, uh, subsidized childcare, there's absolutely no reason to think that investing in a program that subsidizes these kids is going to have anything like positive returns or seven to one return. You don't even have any reason to think it would be positive and you have some reason to think that it could push us in the opposite direction because there is some research that shows that government efforts to move more kids, to take them out of the home and into government daycare centers actually can backfire in terms of kids' well-being. Yeah, I know that that was shown in Quebec. They have what amounts to about a $5 per day subsidized childcare program. And it led to a huge shift in a lot of young mothers entering the labor force and a lot of children who had been in either parental or family-based care shifting to these government-centered childcare programs. And they had really devastating consequences there. I mean, talking about children's you know, social outcomes, their motility, um, family relationships was especially negative. And just talking about the hostility and the anxiety that developed. And it even went through to teenagers having higher crime rates, the ones that had been exposed to this program. So I think it's really hard to say that we can call this an investment when you look at one select couple dozen children who attended a boutique childcare program um, and then suggest that we're going to make that writ large, but that does make me think about, you know, this was a boutique program and what's going to happen to the costs, the affordability of childcare, and also the access to it, the availability and the number of providers that are out there. If you have government subsidies that are only going to the childcare programs that are willing to implement all these new government regulations, things like having all of your teachers have at least a bachelor's degree, two to one ratios, all these things that actually drive up costs, and yet it's going to be the smaller and in-home providers that won't be able to comply with those. There are things even when you're doing work like so-called infrastructure work on a child care center, having to abide by prevailing wage laws and to follow the Davis-Bacon Act, you know, the family child care center down the street has no idea what that is and they're not going to be able to qualify for these subsidies. Church-based centers, they're not going to be the ones that qualify. Um, and so just what that's going to end up doing and actually, I think, increasing costs, reducing access to supply and driving out those more flexible and those lower cost providers that are the ones that, you know, are the opportunities, I think, for people, especially women who want to have um, more part-time jobs, independent work, to be able to arrange something, you know, with a neighbor down the street to watch one another's kids. The problem is not that we need more regulations and more government centers, but that we need the government to pare back those regulations so that there are more opportunities out there for flexible arrangements. I mean, as it is now, if Carrie and I wanted to trade off childcare and have our kids go to one house or the other after school, 
we could only do it if we were doing it in the exact same increments and we never exchanged any pay. If there were one week when I wanted Carrie to watch my kids three days and she was only watching mine two and I wanted to pay her for that, then she would either have to become my legal household employee or she'd have to come over to my house and I would have to have my house approved to be a regulated childcare center, the fire safety things in place, all the gates, only the regulated um, toys and labels could be present there. It's just overly burdensome. And I think that's really the point behind inaccessible and unaffordable childcare. And yet that's exactly more of what is being added on here. Exactly. And you know, I think that you, it's funny because I feel like sometimes when we talk about um, childcare and we start bringing up kind of the negative consequences of childcare, I want to be real careful because, um, you know, I think that that um, yeah, I want there. I feel like if people, there's a lot of people for whom um, a, like the like a more official kind of school-like childcare center and institutional daycare center. Yeah, I think that's a fine choice for a lot of families. I don't mean to criticize anybody who decides to make those choices. But when you look at what most parents want and what they say they prefer, most of them want to, to more closely mimic home life. Um, and it is whether they, you know, they either would love to have a parent who can stay at home. If they can't have a parent stay at home, then it's a grandparents, um, a close family member, second is friend, and then it's a home provider, and then last is moving towards this more um, kind of traditional business-like um, or school-like uh, daycare center, especially for your smallest kids. Um, you know, I think that we can, the market should be able to, to provide this and provide a plethora of, of different opportunities for people to, um, to provide services for people who need childcare. And it's just, it's terrible to think of government coming in, again, making it much more one-size-fits-all, much less flexible, and really doubling down on parents' least preferred option. Um, and, you're, and you're right, Rachel, if it was, there's so many, right now we have that classic problem of when there's, there's a lot of people who could provide childcare and wanna earn money on the side. And then we have a lot of people who need childcare and wanna have like, you know, more modest childcare arrangements for a couple days a week, more a mother helper type things. But unfortunately, it's really hard for those two things to meet, that supply and that demand. And that's because government regulation is standing in the way and making it essentially impossible for people to offer those services. So you're right, this is the American Families Act when it comes to childcare takes us exactly in the wrong direction. If you need parents to deserve more support, let's support the parents, not a specific childcare choice. Um, it's and, and really and look at getting government out of the way so we can provide a better solution for families. Exactly. I think that what most families want is policymakers to help support them in the choices that they make instead of politicians telling them what choices they should make. And I'm glad you brought up those preferences because there was a recent study that showed only 18% of American families' top preference is for both parents to work and for the children to be in full-time childcare. And the support is even lower among lower income and Hispanic families. So it really needs to be about the choices and what's best for each family. Um, but thank you so much for joining me today, Carrie. And I want to encourage everybody to sign up for and attend our upcoming events that will dive into the education in the healthcare components of the Americans Families Plan. Thanks so much for having me on, Rachel.